This is Pandemic Planet, the podcast where we talk about the urgent health security threats facing the world, the geopolitical and societal challenges they present, and how the United States can best lead health security efforts abroad while protecting Americans at home. Pandemic Planet is the podcast series of the CSIS Commission on Strengthening America's Health Security. While our sister podcast series, Coronavirus Crisis Update, focuses on what's happening in America, here on Pandemic Planet, we'll look at the global and geopolitical effects of health security threats. Welcome to Pandemic Planet. Hello, and welcome to a new podcast from the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. I'm Catherine Bliss, a senior fellow with the center, and I'm joined today by Dr. Seth Berkeley, Chief Executive Officer of Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, a partnership that brings together governments, international organizations, private companies, and civil society to ensure the affordability and availability of vaccines for people in lower and lower middle income countries. Seth, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being here. So you've been at the helm of Gavi since August of 2011, and the last decade has really been a remarkable period at the organization. You've seen the introduction of new vaccines offering protection against human papillomavirus and cervical cancer, at least 16 countries that have transitioned from Gavi's support to become fully self-financing, the engagement of a number of new vaccine manufacturers, many of which are based in middle-income countries, and an advanced market commitment for the investigational Ebola vaccine that has now been licensed and distributed in a number of countries. Gavi has also had two successful replenishments and was set to start a new five-year period of work, which I guess up until January of 2020, you thought would largely focus on refining and achieving the equity agenda. But then COVID hit, and Gavi, like so many organizations, has had to pivot and rethink some of its existing strategies and now take on an ambitious new agenda to ensure the equitable distribution of COVID vaccines once they're available. So I'd like to start with the emergence of COVID last winter at the beginning of 2020. Back in late February, you spoke at one of the last public events the Global Health Policy Center hosted at CSIS before we all shifted to remote work and virtual convenings. And during your keynote address, you said, you know, referring to what was then, I think, just called the novel coronavirus, we are either right now in a very severe dress rehearsal for the very big one, or we are in the beginning of the very big one, and we are not perfectly prepared. So now, nearly one year into the pandemic, with the launch of the Accelerating COVID-19 Tools Accelerator and the COVAX Pillar, how do you reflect on that earlier statement? First of all, that was a great event, and it seems like a lifetime ago in COVID times. Clearly, the scale and the scope of the pandemic and the disruptions that it's caused have been greater than anything we've seen at least for a century. You know, it's true that many uh, more people contracted and lost their lives to Spanish flu in, in 1918, but that could be because our science and healthcare are far more advanced now, or it could be, you know, that the Spanish flu was that much more lethal. You know, we don't yet know. And, and of course, we're not finished with COVID-19 yet. So I think we're seeing, you know, the dramatic effects of what infectious disease can do to society. So, you know, if we look at this, there's been um, now more than 59 million cases, more than 1.3 million deaths. 
when Gavi started looking at this in March, there were only a handful of cases and deaths, but today there's um, more than 11 million confirmed cases and close to 200,000 deaths. And so, you know, we have seen a dramatic spread of that pandemic. Now, of course, you know, we were not as prepared as we should have been. And we, we talked a little bit at that time, but I think now that's quite clear. But we've also seen some impressive acts of global collaboration, you know, come out. You've mentioned the Act A Accelerator, the COVAX pillar. And I think that that is something that is important as we try to move forward. It would have been great if we had those tools in place. So maybe I'll say something about COVAX. So the idea originally, when this we figured out that this was a infectious disease, that vaccines were going to get developed, was that we needed to get vaccines for developing countries. But we were worried that we might be in the same situation as 2009, where there was no vaccine available for those except in the very wealthy countries. And so we extended the facility globally. 92 low and lower middle income countries and small island economies, and then self-financing countries. And we didn't know how many were gonna be interested, but we were very gratified to see now that 189 countries have stepped forward to work together in a multilateral fashion on trying to drive vaccines forward. So I think this tells us that there is an important appetite and an important way to work together. But to say ensuring global access is a critical priority, but it's not going to be easy. This is going to be the largest rollout of vaccines in history. So at that event back in February and for several years now and, and certainly since February, you know, you've really been emphasizing the relevance of immunization programs to health security. And you know, I think for a lot of people, immunizations conjure up images of happy babies sitting on their mother's laps and getting protected. Health security then, you know, makes you think of people in lab coats and hazmat suits and sort of a very different set of images. Can you explain how these issues are connected in your mind, especially, you know, as we saw the pandemic unfold and immunization coverage rates really begin to drop in some countries around the world, how did you think about and talk about the relationship between immunizations and health security, knowing on the one hand, people were afraid to go into clinics to you know, receive routine immunizations? How did you balance the security needs of protecting people from coronavirus with the importance of ensuring continued access to immunizations against measles, polio, pneumonia, and other disease? It's an interesting infection in that the way this plays out is a small percentage of people get severely ill and they overwhelm the health system. And so we have to think about the fact that you want a functioning health system. And it's one of the reasons, by the way, that our first target for vaccination is health workers to make sure they stay healthy and are able to do what they need to do. But what's important about that overwhelming the health system is if you have outbreaks of other infectious diseases, they will also overwhelm the health system. So the last thing you need is to have two parallel outbreaks going, going on at the same time. So when this disease was figured out and the whole idea of having a separation as a key factor and personal protection equipment, et cetera, they at that moment said the policy guidance was no more preventive campaigns. They said if you had an outbreak and you needed to do a campaign, that was possible, but it would need to be case by case. But very importantly, they advised that we continue routine immunization. And in fact, there was an interesting study by the London School that said if you were to stop immunization 
for the purpose of trying to protect against COVID. For every COVID death you would prevent, you would have 84 deaths from vaccine-preventable diseases. So clearly, we want not to have those played against each other, but you're absolutely right. In reality, what happened is health workers were distracted dealing with the pandemic. Uh, People were afraid to go to health facilities, and we've seen a real drop in vaccination. Bill Gates has a, a way he describes it. He says, we lost 25 years of progress in 25 weeks. You know, that's not a bad layout of that. And, you know, if I look at the Gavi numbers, 68 supposed vaccine introductions and campaigns um, in 2020, 42 of those have been impacted due to COVID. Now, we're beginning to see, you know, the shipments of vaccine come back. We're seeing the dip that occurred in, in March going back up. And But, you know, we still have many under immunized and we don't know whether they will go right back to where we were before, which is what you'd hope, all the progress that's been made over the years versus having a long time period to kind of get us back up to there because these are people, you know, in marginal situations, et cetera. But to get to your broader question on the global health security side, I think, you know, this is the best example. I mean, you disrupted the entire world, you know, the entire global economy due to an infectious disease that moved from a point outbreak to, you know, 180 countries in a few weeks. So I think when we think about global health security, we have to think about these types of infectious diseases, but it's not just this. It's, you know, Ebola was going on during this period. Yellow fever outbreaks are going on. You know, measles is the most easy to spread. So we really need to pay attention to these infectious diseases. So immunization and health security are connected. In a recent piece that you published in advance of the Paris Peace Forum, you kind of went beyond the idea of immunizations and health security to argue that immunizations actually do more than just save lives. They help foster equitable, peaceful, and stable societies. You know, as I read that, I thought about the examples from Central America, the conflicts in the 1980s and the use of immunizations or campaigns to, you know, bring in polio workers as a way to at least, you know, arrange some kind of ceasefire between opposing factions for a period of time. But, you know, I wanted to just ask you to say a little bit more about how you see immunizations as perhaps promoting a broader peace and security agenda. And, you know, just to ask if the sectors focusing on security and conflict resolution should be paying more attention to immunizations now as tools for building peace. So, first of all, to sustain a peaceful um, society, countries have to build trust and social cohesion. That's what's really critical. You want to reduce hate and violence. You want to strengthen economic resilience. You want to ensure the inclusion of of women and marginalized groups and, and so much more, in addition to providing the essential services. So, as we think now, this backdrop of the worst recession since World War II, you know, the pandemic is profoundly affecting peace and security across the globe. And if we think about the fact that more than 40% of the global poor live in conflict and violence-affected economies, um, in fragile settings, that's where people most deeply affected by conflicts, forced displacement, and natural disasters, you know, we're seeing a compounded effect of the the COVID-19 pandemic. 
we're also seeing the economic effects. So World Bank is estimating that by 2021, the pandemic may push up to 150 million people into extreme poverty, and more are likely to live in congested urban settings, to work in sectors that are most affected by the lockdowns and mobility restrictions. You know, these are going to be informal workers unreached by social services. So I think this is the picture that we see in this. And so the way to try to think about trying to reverse that is to be able to um, go ahead and get vaccines to these communities and to try to protect these communities so that we can go back to some type of normal commerce, some type of normal engagement. And if we don't do that, I think we will see a lot of disruption. And, um, you know, I think it's a tragedy because the world, despite all of the bad stories, and you've reported many times about this yourself, despite all of the views of people of what's happening in the world, the truth is the world has been getting better. Extreme poverty has been going away. And we're seeing a reversing of that for the first time in a decade. So it's a really big challenge right now and something that I think the world has to deal with. You mentioned just now the importance of trust at the community level for, you know, not just improving health and access to healthcare services, but, you know, really encouraging resilience and, and a rebound from the most negative effects of the pandemic overall. And so, you know, I wanted to ask about the related question really around vaccine confidence. Here in the United States, polls earlier in the fall at least suggested that a good proportion of the population was fairly nervous about the likely safety and efficacy of any vaccines and around COVID-19. And some people said they felt that the process was being rushed. Uh, this has been particularly true among some of the communities that have borne a disproportionate burden of the cases of COVID deaths and economic impacts. Now, as we've heard some of the good news, you know, coming out over the last couple of weeks about, you know, positive results from the clinical trials and applications here in the U.S., at least for emergency use authorization, some of those numbers may change. But, you know, I'd be interested to hear, you know, how you see the challenge of vaccine confidence playing out globally with respect to COVID-19 vaccines and what you see as some of the most promising ways to, you know, address that in particularly you know, with the countries that Gavi is working with through COVAX and other facilities. Well, first of all, I mean, I think people are still nervous. You talked about it in the past, but I think people are nervous. And part of that is the broader environment. And we always have to think of it that way. So one of the reasons traditionally vaccine hesitancy has been uh, worse in developed countries than in developing countries is because the diseases aren't seen there anymore. So it's much easier to take them for granted and to say, well, you know, if there's some side effects from the vaccine, that may be worse than the disease. You don't know the disease. Modern medicine will cure it. It's, you know, it's no problem. Whereas in developing countries, at least until recently, people still remembered these diseases. They knew people who had died or who had become, um, you know, quite disabled from these diseases. And therefore, they were willing to travel long distances to get vaccines. Now, that's not a perfect correlation, and we all know of some examples. But what's critical is having trust, as you started with this. And so, first of all, it has been rushed. What's critical about the rush is it, it's not going to be rushed on the safety side. The trials have actually been quite large. You know, we've seen trials of 30,000 people, 60,000 people. What's been rushed is doing all of the work in parallel rather than sequentially. And I think it's extraordinary. We went from having a sequence of the virus 
to a human efficacy result of a, in a 40,000 person trial, at least a preliminary result in 303 days. So, you know, people have every right to say, my God, we're really moving quickly here. But it's, it's that external environment, which we've seen some of the nationalists have gotten together with some of the conspiracy theory people who have gotten together with some of the anti-vaccine crowd who have played off on some of the bots who have been passing misinformation on both sides of vaccines as a way to, to lose trust in government. So with all of that going on, it is a, a crucible of challenging information. And so I'm quite worried about that. Now, like you, my hope is, is that when people see the vaccines go through a rigorous regulatory system that is independent of political interference and people start getting these vaccines, we have transparency on the data, they start getting them, they see people, you know, get good results from them. I think that those you know, that mindset will change, but I am very worried about it. And, and it is now also a big problem in the developing world because, you know, again, this misinformation spreads literally at the speed of light. So this is something that we have to work on as an alliance. We're working hard with local communities. We're working on demand generations. We're creating a, a broader program to be able to do better listening and understanding of what's happening. But all of this is going to need intensity of engagement that probably hasn't been there before to move at this pace. So you've referred to the work that Gavi has already been doing and then I've taken on additional work with the COVAX pillar and now much of this effort around building trust and understanding what relates to demand and vaccine acceptance in different areas. I mean, the organization has really expanded its work considerably over the past, I guess, six to eight months. And you were already planning a replenishment and launch of a new strategy. And you've, I think, more than doubled the number of countries that you work with, still working with the low and lower middle income countries, but also now for the first time, or perhaps in a different way, working with the self-financing middle and high income countries to support their quest to secure doses of COVID vaccines once they're approved as well. And, you know, I would just ask you to say, you know, what has this unprecedented period been like for Gavi as an organization, as an alliance, you know, with all the different partners that work together, but also for staff within the secretariat? What have been some of the most challenging aspects of taking on all of this new work? You know, Catherine, I have to be honest, it's been really tough. I mean, first of all, being in lockdown was hard enough. And for some people, you know, who have small children, who have family members who have been sick or have other, you know, responsibilities, that's a challenge that everybody around the world is thinking about, but it's meant the intensity of this workload. And the truth is we started off as a relatively small and lean secretariat, which we've now stretched to do the work initially. We are catching up. We're beginning to add some more people. We're beginning to get secondments from different groups. And when I say we, I don't just mean the core secretariat. I think this is true across all the partners working, but it was also an all hands on deck moment, you know, at a less urgent moment, if we sat down and said, let's design this perfectly, let's do this, it, this would be a multi, multi-year process, maybe a five-year process to design it. And we had to do it in a very short period of time. And we just didn't have the luxury to take a longer period of time. So the team has been absolutely fabulous. The partners have been fabulous. 
And we're working very long hours, but, you know, I think we are getting there. And it's a little bit like building, you know, the sailboat while you're sailing it and, you know, you're going across the pandemic seas in, in doing it is the way I think about it. So, Working across all these countries has meant diplomacy, it's meant business acumen, it's meant scientific knowledge, it's meant good organizational skills, it's been, you know, making tough decisions that are engaged. And as you can imagine, with 189 governments involved, we have a whole range of different governments, but also dozens of vaccine manufacturers, um, not only the core of what COVAX is, but also now working with humanitarian organizations, civil society, trying to make sure that we can go broader as well as the interest of the public. So I think it's been very challenging. We've been um, touched by the support of the donor community. As you know, we had a successful replenishment at which point we launched the advanced market commitment. And um, since then, we set out a goal of trying to raise $2 billion by the end of 2020, and we've already exceeded that goal. So that's been great. But we're also trying to bring together the World Bank and their funding streams, the regional banks, and you know everybody into one effort to support countries to try to do this. Because fundamentally, we don't believe anybody's safe unless everybody's safe with this type of pandemic. And so what that requires is equitable access across the world. So 2020 has been a difficult year, but also an inspiring one. You've talked about unprecedented levels of scientific collaboration and commitments and communications. But as we look ahead to the end of 2020 and think about, you know, in the midst of all these considerable challenges on the pandemic high seas, as you phrased it, what gives you the greatest hope for 2021? What are you really looking forward to? Well, I mean, I think, first of all, the amazing news, which you've only known now for about a month, is that vaccines work. You know that I spent part of my career working on HIV vaccines, trying to drive those forward. And here we are 40 years after that pandemic started without vaccines. And so I think we had no idea whether this was going to be a hard organism or an easy organism. And, you know, it turns out at least there are now four vaccines that have reported out some efficacy results. And there have been of different classes. And as you know, there's a wide pipeline of potential vaccines. So I think that's great news, which means we will be able to get vaccines out. Of course, we don't know fully, will it work in all the different subgroups of the population? Will you have durable immunity? Will you need revaccination? Many questions what's going to happen to the, is it going to protect against infection as well as disease, et cetera, et cetera. So I don't want to say that we know all that, but I think from the science, it's really positive. And so I think we'll see in 2021, the rollout of the vaccine. But I also think that we also need to keep in mind that the sooner we can begin to get this under control, we can begin to then deal with some of these poverty related issues that are so critical. And as you know, it's been very painful to watch countries be, for example, ones that are dependent upon, you know, commodities that are dependent upon agricultural exports, et cetera, to just have everything stop, no transport, no anything. And this is a challenge. So hopefully that will pick up. And then lastly, you know, my perspective is going back to the Gavi 5.0 agenda. What we wanted to do in this period was, yes, continuing new vaccine introductions, but we had a new strategy, which was called the zero dose strategy. And that was that what we know now is we reach 90% of families with at least one dose of a routine vaccine. The 10% that we don't reach, that's where most of the deaths are from vaccine preventable disease. Two thirds of those families live below the poverty line. So from an equity point of view, if we could bring the health system out to those communities, 
that would be an extraordinary gift and it would move us towards universality. And, and we believe that since we're that far along more than any other intervention, we could perhaps get there by 2030. And so that was the agenda before COVID. Now we have more zero dose, we have more under immunized. The question is, can we get back on that quest? And you know, we'll start hopefully working on that and you know, in, in, in 2021, maybe it won't be till 2022, but hopefully it's just gonna be a, a short delay, but this is an opportunity to build that system out. And that system is critical for global health security because no, this pandemic began in, you know, around Wuhan. But if you remember the Ebola pandemic that began in West Africa, that began in an area where there was no health system. And it took months to figure out what it was. And that's why it spread to urban areas, et cetera. So what we need is a system that reaches everywhere. Well, Dr. Seth Berkeley, CEO of Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you for your efforts to ensure equitable access to COVID-19 vaccines for people in all countries. And good luck to you and the organization in the months ahead. Thank you, Catherine. It's great talking to you as always. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog. 